All right, um, a couple book recommendations before we get into it. This topic of spiritual warfare. One, we recommend it a lot, but you know, you just can't say things too many times sometimes, um, just in case anybody mentioned or missed it. But there's a book that we um, refer to a lot. It's an excellent resource. I'm sorry, don't get your shoulder ready. This is my, I don't have an extra copy of this. This is mine. I'm not giving this one out. But this is a wonderful book uh, that is basically a synthesis of all Bible doctrine. It's called Systematic Theology, Systematic Theology, an Introduction to Biblical Doctrine by Wayne Grudem. We generally sell them in the Resource Center, but we, every time we buy five to ten of them, they just go like hotcakes. You can find it on Amazon, Systematic Theology. There's lots of books named Systematic Theology. It's a huge discipline of theology that's been around for centuries. This one is by Wayne Grudem, who is a really respected scholar. We agree with a, a vast majority of what he says. I agree with a vast majority of what he says. And if not everything, but I, I won't say go quite that far because I haven't necessarily read everything that he's written, but um, super respected. And he writes in a very understandable, accessible way. And so even though this is a thick book, don't be intimidated by it. And this book has a couple chapters on angels and demons, which are excellent, just really clear. So I'd encourage you to get that if you're interested in going deeper. And then this book, which is, look how thin this is. We're into thin books. Um, I'm into thin books because uh, I, I like to have, to have the feeling of accomplishment of actually finishing something. And so this book is called Spiritual Warfare, A Biblical and Balanced Perspective, written by um, two pastors who have their heads on straight, um, not sensational, very clear, very readable, very accessible, very helpful. Um, I skimmed a large portion of this book this week, r- read a good portion of it, and I thought it was really strong. And it's just basically an exposition of uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, the, the, really the most extended portion in the scriptures teaching about spiritual warfare. Um, we, we've got about six or seven copies in the Resource Center. Anybody want this book here? Mark Williams. All right, there you go. It's because you raised your hand a little too early, Jay Hearn. <laughs> All right, well, let's pray and ask the Lord to, to bless us and help us tonight as we look at, at this huge topic. Father, thank you for your kindness to us. Thanks, Lord, for just the great privilege to gather together as your people in this building and to uh, be comfortable and to be free of, of uh, persecution. We do think about our brothers and sisters around the world who do not have that, that privilege, that luxury. We pray that you would strengthen them, bless them, encourage them. We come now to a a huge topic that is um, often misunderstood and misunderstood and there's often lots of sensationalism and even maybe a little bit of fear that goes along with the topic of spiritual warfare and angels and demons. I pray that you'd help us pursue a better, more biblical, balanced understanding of, of these issues and Ultimately, again, Lord, I pray that you would root us deeper in Christ's work for his people. And that if God is for us, then who can be against us? Nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So I pray for uh, this to be an encouraging, helpful, uh, helpful time. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we're gonna, just going to work our way through this outline. I'm going to stop a good number of times and, and open it up for questions of anybody that might have any questions. And we are going to need a couple guys to run. Cole, you just got nominated to hold on to this mic and, um, and run it around. And um, who else we got over here? Who, can, who, can, who's, who else can run a mic for me? Brother, oh, okay, Blake. I was gonna, Blake, go ahead, brother. Um, you just got that mic. You guys have to turn them on in a second. But um, in just a second, I'll pause and have ask any questions that you want, and we want you to speak into the microphone when you have a question so that we can pick it up for the, for the podcast. All right, what does the Bible say about angels and their role? All right, we are, we are in a large way going to skim over this, okay? I know that most of us have probably come from a background of Miracle on 34th Street, you know, when there's an angel in there, or Touched by an Angel, remember that series that was so big in CBS back in the early 2000s or late 90s? That's maybe as deep as some of us have gone on angels, thinking about angels. And then demons, we think about, you know, some of you like me were psyched out by that Frank Peretti novel in the late 80s, early 90s, Piercing the Darkness. Remember that? Anybody read that? Most of you probably weren't even born then. A little, 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 little strange. Um, but, uh, or, or we're more informed by angels and demons uh, by, like, horror movies. You know, The Omen. 
Remember Damien and all that? Golly, that was dreadful. Oh, that was terrible for me. I can't believe my parents let me watch that show. But anyway, what does the Bible say about these things? So the first point there, what does the Bible say about angels and their role? Number one, or letter A there, basic facts about angels. We're going to fly through this and stop for questions. They're created spiritual beings with moral judgment, high intelligence, but no physical bodies. Although they do, at times, take on the form of a person, kind of, you know, to, to appear and speak to people. We do see that occasionally happening in, in scriptures. They are not former people who have died and are now in heaven, okay? So, um, they're not, okay? So, that they're not former people. So, like, your, your dear grandmother that's a Christian or is not an angel in heaven right now. I'm sorry um, to, to, to wreck you on that, but there's no, that's just not it. They're created spiritual beings. There are only two of them are named in Scripture, Michael. And we see him named in Jude, Revelation, Daniel. Um, he seems to be kind of the prince uh, of, the de- of, the, of the angels, uh, very powerful, ha- has a sort of authority over other angels, it seems to be. And then Gabriel, who seems to be a messenger who comes and speaks um, in the beginning chapters of Luke and, and announces to uh, and speaks to Elizabeth and, and, and Mary. And so there's these two, really the only two angels that, that I think are named in scriptures that, uh, that, that, that I found. Their number is innumerable. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, the writer says, But you have come to, the, to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festal gathering. So there's just uh, really an uncountable number of these heavenly, beautiful beings. They do not marry. In the Gospels, in Matthew and Luke, Jesus says that about, he's speaking about people, And he says, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And so that's saying a couple things. Number one is that angels don't have the same sort of relationships that we do here on earth. And ah, I hate, I mean, I I know this is going to upset some of your romantic notions or maybe some things that you heard on Valentine's Day, but we are not going to be married in heaven either. I mean, just let that one sink in. We are not going to be married. I know I can see some of you like, not you, not us, baby. I, I don't care what he says. Not. Don't listen to him. Um, marriage is a wonderful, beautiful thing. But marriage is a temporal thing, okay? Marriage is a temporal thing. Marriage is a shadow, is a temporary earthly shadow of an eternal heavenly reality of Christ's relationship with his church. So let's not idolize marriage. And if you're single, and if you remain single for the rest of your life, you are not less than. You're not a second-class citizen. Jesus was the most fulfilled person that ever lived, and he was not married. Paul, another incredibly fulfilled and satisfied, happy person, not married. So we, uh, angels, I, I diverted into a point about us, but angels are not, do not marry. They have great but limited power. We see in Psalms uh, uh, them uh, having, being ascribed great power. They do mighty works. And we see, in, like in Matthew 28, this angel that comes to announce Jesus' resurrection just rolls away the stone seemingly without effort. And we see them doing great battle in spiritual realms in Daniel and in Revelation. So they have great power, but obviously limited power. Man, at least initially, is made a little lower than the angels, as Hebrews Two says, but eventually, and this is really, really an incredible thought to think about, we will eventually judge them. This is just one of those things that scriptures, I mean, there's so much about reality and eternity and life that we just don't see. You know that, that verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it says, for we know in part, but there's coming a day when we shall know fully and be known fully. Well, can you imagine all the things that God has designed and redemption in the universe that we just don't see at this point? Well, one of these little, just tiny little points that it's just like a throw out there in the scriptures that the Holy Spirit just mentions through the Apostle Paul is that we will judge angels. 1 Corinthians verse, chapter 6, verse 3, Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So, I mean, golly, what's, what's that look like? Oh, my goodness. But it's true that we will eventually be in a position of authority over angels. The purpose and role of angels in letter B there is they carry out some of God's plans. 
Um, sometimes God just bypasses things and does things directly, but we see this being like a, like a, uh, uh, just a heavenly dispatch of, of God's uh, plans being executed through angels. They, they bring messages. They carry out some of God's judgments. Um, in those, those scriptures that I cited there, they one angel brings a plague for David's sin on Israel. Another time, they're slaying the leaders of Assyria. In Acts chapter 12, they're striking Herod dead for not giving glory to God. And then at the end of the Bible, we see in Revelation 16, they're pouring out the wrath of God on, on an unbelieving world. And so they carry out God's judgment. Upon Christ's return, they will accompany him as a great army. Um, and the scriptures are referenced there. They, they patrol the earth as God's representatives. They carry out war against demonic forces. And there's this really incredible scene. Again, it's just something that's just not really elaborated on. We just get a kind of snapshot into the heavenly realm in Daniel chapter 10, where Daniel's having this dream, and he's praying for help. And there's this angel uh, that comes and is a little late and is, is saying, oh, I, I was detained, I was held up by the, the, the king of Persia, meaning a, a spiritual sort of force of wickedness, and then Michael, the archangel, came and helped me. And so we get a little snapshot into this angel who's fighting this war in the heavenlies for Daniel and God's people and was actually held up uh, by... Uh, a demon, and then had to call for you know backup from from uh, from from Michael. So just really a fascinating picture of how angels are are warring for God's people and for God's purposes, and they are. I think this is probably what we think most naturally of when we think of angels uh, is that they are ministering spirits sent to serve God's people, and we read that in in uh, Hebrews chapter one um, and verse fourteen. You got that up there? Let me just read that. Are they not all ministering spirits? This is speaking of angels. Sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation, which is God's people. So uh, certainly angels are sent to minister to us. And here's something that, that isn't necessarily um, on the surface of Scripture, but I think is really part of when we kind of think deeply about the purpose and role of angels, it is really clear and that is point number six there under letter B is that angels really serve to display the greatness of God's love and plan for his people. What do I mean by that? Well, think about just how majestic and beautiful and awesome and powerful angels are. But unlike people, angels are never said in Scripture to be created in the image of God. So we have this special... Uh, designation in God's creation as image bearers of God that even these beautiful creatures and powerful creatures do not have. And then unlike, the next bullet point there, unlike people, no fallen angels were spared and saved after they rebelled. Now we're going to read about the fallen angels who are demons, and that's what's going to be on our next, next point. But the Bible says in 2 Peter 2 and in Jude 6 that after these angels sinned, God immediately cast them away and gave them no opportunity for repentance. And so isn't that a, another sort of striking, maybe not always apparent, but striking difference about God's love for people versus angels? The angels who fell never had an opportunity to repent like we do. And so there's this special plan and love that God has for humans um, that, that sort of marks us as different from angels. And then I think this is incredible, is that as beautiful and as glorious as angels are, the Bible says that the unfallen angels, think about this, angels that never sinned, never fell, they, the Bible says in First Peter, long to look into the salvation that we experience. In fact, I, I mentioned it this last Sunday, talking about how the end of God's plan is better than the beginning. Remember, if you were here on Sunday, we looked at the fourfold state of man and how the, the glorified man is actually a better and happier than even the pre-fall, pre-sinning man because salvation is so glorious that angels who didn't even fall long to look into our salvation. And that's why the theologians of old have called the fall of mankind, they've called it the happy fall. 
even though what we're experiencing right now in the fall is very miserable. I'm not diminishing that at all. But ultimately, it's going to lead to a happier state of mankind because God will make the glorified man in a happier state than pre-fall man ever was. And it's so glorious. Our salvation is so glorious that angels long to look. In fact, let me read that. First Peter chapter, there it is. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. That's speaking of the Old Testament prophets who wrote the scriptures. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you. That's the good news is the gospel, the work of Christ on the cross to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. So think about just how glorious our salvation is. And really, in a, in a sort of roundabout way, angels serve to display the greatness of God's love for his people because he loves us in this special way. So that leads us to a question here in letter C Do Christians have guardian angels? Well, I know this is a real popular uh, notion and and sort of popular culture. There are some scriptures that may speak to this. Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12, very familiar psalm. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So that, I think, is just a general reference about how God's angels help us. Kind of like it says in Hebrews 1, they're ministering spirits. But I don't think it necessarily means that there's a personal angel. could, but not necessarily. We see in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus say in verse 10, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, speaking of children. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. So maybe Jesus is speaking about children in this particular instance, having particular angels. Maybe there's a, a kind of, you know, uh, detachment of angels whose special responsibility is to, to care for children. Uh, we don't know. It's not real specific, but it's possible. And then um, in Acts chapter 12, verse 15, when Peter <clears throat> is broken out of prison, actually by an angel, the servant girl Rhoda um, answers his knock to the door, and um, she comes to tell everybody else, hey, Peter's out of prison, and they think she's crazy. And they said to her in Acts chapter 12, verse 15, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. So there was some sense, even then, in the early New Testament times, that maybe there were specific angels. I think the answer to that is scriptural support for personal angels is vague. And I will say this, I'm not saying, you know, that's not not the case, but I just think it's it's... It's something that I would be hesitant to sort of stamp. Yeah, this is clear. But I will say this, that the idea, the way the idea often work, way it works itself out in people's minds, at least in contemporary culture, I think is, is, is usually unhelpful. Um, it's, it's kind of a, a, almost like a rabbit's foot, sort of. It's more of like a superstitious kind of a thing, you know. And um, I, just, I just don't think the t- trajectory and the emphasis of Scripture is on sort of like your personal little angel on your shoulder kind of whispering into your ear or, you know, keeping you from, you know, stepping out in front of a bus or whatever. I, I, I just think that God is more personal with all of his people, and I don't, I don't think God is like tired and like, ah, oh, you know, Michael, would you go down there and sit on Mark's shoulder, please, and just kind of make sure he doesn't mess it up. I mean, I just, I don't, I don't, I think that's kind of the way the popular culture views it, and I just don't think that's the trajectory of Scripture um, at all. So what should our posture be towards angels? We should be aware of them, and we should thank God for them, certainly. God, as we read in Hebrews 1, sends them as ministering spirits sent to help us. We should also be aware that Satan disguises uh, himself as an angel of light says that in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And also Paul, in Galatians chapter 1, warns the Galatians not to accept any other gospel. In this instance, he's telling them, you know, this false gospel of adding some work, in this particular sin- instance, in, uh, circumcision, onto the gospel for right standing with God is false. And he's saying, even if an angel of heaven appears to you and preaches another gospel to you, don't believe it. And so... Yeah, I think that Satan can trick people and make us think that, um, that, that what, what we're hearing or some message we're receiving is from God. And we should be aware that Satan disguises himself in this way. 
We should not worship them, pray to them, or have an unhealthy preoccupation with them. All right, any questions about angels? And you guys can flip those microphones on, and um, we are going to take a couple questions. Greg, yeah. Cole, thank you, brother. I'm confused. Isaiah 6, where it talks about the seraphim Mm -hmm. with six wings covering their face and their feet and flying with the other, crying, holy, holy. Are they the same as angels, and do they have bodies? Or it's a great, yeah, it's a great, great question. There's, there's three other sort of categories. They have just sort of general angels, and then there's seraphim and cherubims, and then we see in several other instances things referred to as other living creatures. And so, um, yeah, I, I, we, are those? I think those are just manifestations of heavenly creatures. Uh, that I think we can kind of put them in the angel category, um, heavenly creatures category. But so, uh, like, yeah, in Isaiah, a couple times, seraphims are mentioned, cherubims are mentioned uh, one or two other times. And then later on in Revelation, there's, there's other living creatures. And those are the only time that those words are used for those creatures the vast majority of the time in the rest of the Bible. It's angels. And so, yeah, there's a mystery to that. Um, and it seems like in Isaiah, the purpose there is to be almost like a heavenly chorus that, um, that uh, uh, is just there to praise God, you know, unending praise. And then uh, I can't remember what, whether it's in Isaiah or Ezekiel. I want to say maybe Ezekiel. Uh, there's, this, there's some things referred to as other living creatures. And they have like six wings, and uh, the, uh, the, they, they have the image of a man, but they have the hindquarters of an of a oxen and the front legs of a lion. <laughs> you know? And so the speculation is, is that it's like this creature is showing God's sort of dominion over every sphere of the created creatures. So yeah, mystery, mystery. But yeah, good point, Greg. Any other questions about angels? Yes, Miriam. Um, this lady had a daughter that was um, being tested for a week at Emory and mm-hmm. Eggleston um, for possible brain eye tumors. Yeah. Um, and, she, you know, she had gone downstairs to run all the tests and everything, and this was in 1985 where the MRIs had just come out. And the lady was up in her hospital room reading the Bible, mm-hmm. and she's, she was a nervous wreck, um, you know, but she was just clasping onto her Bible, and uh, a man came in mm-hmm. and knew her name, said her name, and he said the little girl's name, and he said, I just want you to know that she's going to be okay. And he did say, um, continue your faith. Um, that's the best thing you have going for you right mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. Continue your faith. Um, your daughter will be fine. Um, mm-hmm. I, I really wish that there was a way she could get into the MRI. There was a long list of mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. several months away before a, an appointment could be mm-hmm. made for an MRI at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and he really wanted the child to have the MRI. Mm-hmm. Um, he wished the lady, you know, blessings and and walked away mm-hmm. and later on the lady went to the nurse's station described him to a t to the nurses to all the doctors that had come to the room and no one could identify mm-hmm. this man yeah um and you know sh- she shared with me that she thinks that it was an angel sent to her mm-hmm. to calm her from the surgery that was about yeah. to take place because it was yeah. a 10 to 11 hour surgery. Yeah. And it just so happened that the very next day, um, the little girl's ophthalmologist came in jumping up and down like a little leprechaun and saying, your daughter has an appointment for an MRI mm. today. Yeah. And so the MRI confirmed what they needed to do in order to do the surgery. I mean, is it possible yeah. that that could have been an angel? Yeah. Sure, I think, yeah, I think, yeah, I think it certainly could have been an angel. Um, I will say this, because, you know, we, we all kind of have heard maybe testimonies like that. I certainly don't want to discount 
those testimonies because in there's a verse in Hebrews, can't remember where it is, I don't have it in my notes, where it says that we at, at times may be unaware that we are entertaining angels. So that, that could certainly be the case. I will say that it seems like in the scripture the general trajectory of the appearance of angels seems to be majestic and clear and like pro- proclamation and announcement. Um, but I also want to balance that with, um, with the verse in Hebrews that says that we may be at times unaware entertaining angels. Um, well, and I wish I had that verse. She did claim that there was um, an amazing amount of peace. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not going to discount yeah. things like that. Um, um, but, I, but I'm also, um, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm going to be generally kind of just, uh, suspicious isn't the word. I'm just, I'm just going uh, to, if it, it encourages a person. I also realize in our culture, a lot of the stories get sort of, you know, kind of passed around. And so, yeah, is it possible? Certainly. And, and if it was an encouragement to that lady, I'm certainly, I w- if I were her pastor, I wouldn't, I wouldn't um, like, you know, dissuade her in that way. But yeah, I do think, I do think that at times God may help his people in that way. So yeah, yeah. All right. Any other, one more question about, hey, John, thought. Hebrews 13.2. Thank you for that reference about, about angels. Entertaining un- angels unaware. All right, what does the Bible say about Satan and demons? Okay, again, skimming along. So much we could say here. Basic facts about Satan and demons. They are fallen angels. So they weren't originally created as demons. They were previous angels who rebelled against God. So in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, For God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. And then in Jude uh, 6, just one chapter of Jude there, so ver- Jude verse 6, And the angels who didn't, did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. And so those chains may be long chains, but they're still underneath God's rule and authority. So let's think about some timing here because we've been going through Genesis. So in the beginning, God created you know, everything, the heavens and the earth. And then on the sixth day, he creates uh, mankind. And then in Genesis 3, somebody asked me, how long did, had Adam and Eve lived before the fall? I mean, we, the, the scriptures does not answer that question. I think it's more than just like a couple weeks, you know, I, I tend to sort of read the Bible like just thinking that however long it took me to get to the next chapter is like how much time expired, you know, that's sort of my default, you know. But I think that there was a, a period of time there. And so some time there, uh, the angels were created in the first six days of creation. And then a portion of the angels fell. And then uh, organized himself in a way at least Satan uh, is the head, and we'll read about him in just a second, then has this sort of plan to tempt Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis 3 that we just looked at this last Sunday. So lots of stuff happening behind the scenes that the scriptures just do not give us many details about. But the angels were, there's a finite number, a finite number of angels, even though they're innumerable to us, and some of them fell, and those are the finite number of, of demons. Now, in Isaiah and Ezekiel, I won't take the time to read those verses, but those are two passages where God is speaking um, a, a judgment over the king of Babylon and the prince of Tyre, two enemies of God's people at that time, and those were real people that God is speaking about and pronouncing a judgment over. But in both of those instances, in Isaiah and Ezekiel, it seems like the language kind of rises above speaking about just a historical event and a person, um, that Israel, one of Israel's enemies. And so there's been a lot of, of speculation throughout the centuries that that, that is a sort of uh, like a poetic reference to uh, the, 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 the fall of Satan there in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. Possible, I'm not certain about that, but we clearly see in 2 Peter 2 that there was a group of angels who fell. And then it becomes clearly evident that Satan, and that word just literally means adversary, is the head of the demons and leader of the rebellion. We see Satan presenting himself to God in Job 1 to, to be used by God to tempt Job and be part of God's sovereignty there. And we see Satan inciting David in Chronicles, and then Satan directly tempting Jesus in Matthew. And so uh, a little bit in the Old Testament, and then clearly in the New Testament, we see this identification of this lead demon 
um, Satan. Satan is called in the New Testament the originator, the father of lies, and he's the originator of sin. It, whether he led this rebellion, I, I think that's kind of what the reference is in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. I think that's a, a fair um, conclusion to draw. But regardless, he seems to be the leader of the rebellion of the angels, the originator of sin, and Jesus calls him in John 8.44, the father of lies. Point four there, Jesus also calls him the ruler of this world. So he does have uh, authority and power, great power, but it's limited. We'll read about in a second. And Paul calls him the God of this age. So number five there, Satan's and his demons are very powerful, but they are limited and under God's rule. So back to that verse in Jude 6. It says, and this is speaking about the present activity and operation of angels. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So these angels that fell, who are clearly active in the Bible and active today, the Bible is describing them as under chains. So we can make a, a clear uh, you know, assumption there is that they are still under, not assumption, that's a fact, that they're still under God's authority, even, and they're on chains, even though at times that chain may be, uh, at times, a long chain, but they're still under, under God's, God's authority and power. There's no indication in Scripture that they know our thoughts. Uh, in fact, Scripture only speaks of God is knowing our thoughts. We see several times in the Gospels, there's just one example there of Jesus knowing people's thoughts. Genesis speaks about God knowing all of our thoughts. David in Psalm 139 speaks about God knowing our thoughts before we even think them, words on our lips before we even speak them. Um, and Daniel 2, we, we see uh, an affirmation of this truth as, as well. So I don't think that the Bible says that demons, devils know our thoughts. However, they are long-time shrewd observers of humanity. So when it comes to the devil's sort of particularly tempting us in certain things, um, it, it, sometimes it may feel like evil is kind of reading our minds because the devil has been watching us for, he's been watching mankind since the beginning. And just like, you know, we can kind of read each other, you know, you can just kind of get a sense for the expression on somebody's face or just the way they're doing something, kind of what's going on with them. Well, on a much probably more shrewd in a way, the, the devil um, has been observing human behavior um, since the garden, so so they're a very shrewd. The devil and his angel and his de- demons are very shrewd observers of humanity. They're active in the Old and New Testament, and clearly they are still active today. So here's a question: well, Somebody asked me this recently. Why does it seem like uh, there aren't as sort of active or sort of demonic manifestations of demonic activity or, or physical manifestations of demonic activity? in our day like they were in Bible times, especially just going through the Gospel of Mark. You know, we saw all these encounters with Jesus, with, with demonic people. I would say, well, um, I would be careful to sort of make our experience in America universal. So I think that there's, there may very well be um, demonic activity with that sort of physical manifestation in the rest of the world. In fact, I think there, there's very good evidence of that, number one. Number two, I would say that maybe the reason we don't see that in American culture is because the ways that the devil is, is, is working against us, his schemes are more disguised and deceptive and just as destructive, but maybe a, a, little, bit more, a little bit more nuanced and, and subtle. Um, and so I, I would be very reticent to say that there's a, been a diminishment of, of demonic activity because of, you know, the advancement of culture. So I don't think, I think it's, as C.S. Lewis would call it, I think it's chronological snobbery to look back on the New Testament and say, oh, those were primitive people in primitive times. And so it's kind of an animus culture. So that, that's why they're into all that goofy. We don't really see that. We've, we've come beyond. And there are some liberal biblical scholars that sort of have that frame, frame of mind. And I think that's just outright wrong. I think that, that the devil is is still um, trying to thwart God's plan and is still 
the, the, the battle rages. It just may rage in, in different ways in our context, but it is none, it's not at all less fierce and less, um, less consequential. Um, so, um, yeah, still active today. And then, encouragingly, the devil and demons will one day be finally and fully vanquished. And we see in Revelation 20 where the devil and all of his angels are thrown into the lake of fire. Um, lake of fire forever and ever and ever and ever to return. Any questions about devils and demons before we get into sp- the Christian and spiritual warfare? Any questions? Yeah, Kirk. Have you guys already come up with a plan alternating back and forth? You guys are already working as a team and everything? It's awesome. Kirk. I guess my question one is kind of twofold, but when you said that demons are not active today, are you saying that we don't see demon-possessed people today? No, I say demons are active today. Oh, I know, yeah, but yeah. people are saying that that's not, the argument is that demons are not active today? I, some people would say that they just don't feel like they are as active. Yeah, I think that I was summarizing the argument of some people, and I would say I would disagree with that argument. All right, because I, yeah. yeah. well do- I, mean, I think there are, I wouldn't say well-documented, but stories or even personal stories. Yeah. Of, yeah. of people that have actively been demonically possessed. Yeah, yeah. And I, then also, yeah. wouldn't you say that Satan doesn't have to be working as hard nowadays because we as a culture are just helping him along in that with the way... No, I wouldn't say he doesn't have to be working as hard. I'm saying that he's maybe in our context is, is, is his schemes against us in our culture may be different than they were um, in the context of what we read in like Mark and Matthew and these encounters of Jesus. So I wouldn't, I don't, I wouldn't say he's not working as hard. Or, more yeah, aren't or, we working for him? What's that? More in the way our culture is going, aren't we doing the work for him? Yeah, I mean, you, you, could, you could make that case, certainly. But I think that's been the case from the beginning, you know, and so I don't, I, I think that, I think that sort of the trajectory of human history is that the fall happened in Genesis 3, like we, we, we talked about this past Sunday, and you know, there's two kingdoms now. The kingdom of this world, ruled by the devil and his angels and his demons, are, and it's, it's, just, it's just getting worse, and it's, sin is spreading. And God is rescuing a people for himself, and has been uh, really calling out a people for himself since Abraham, and, you know, we see these two kingdoms. And so, yeah, I think, I think Satan has always been working hard, and man has always been getting fooled, and and also resisting him and winning victories. And so, yeah, yeah. Good question. All right, yeah, Bob. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let, quick story with the microphone. This was in um, Afghanistan 2004, and we had the emergency room in Kandahar. And I walked in like I normally did periodically, kind of see what was going on. And the medics, soldiers had an a Afghan guy, very thin, no shirt on, restrained, in a military gurney, kind of like a wheelchair. And they had a mask over his face. And I went up to the specialist and said, hey, what's going on? And he's like, he's been spitting and he's, you know, going crazy. And he was uh, thin, sinewy, just a kind of wild-looking dude. And um, I said, well, you know, what's going on? He said, well, we got the psychiatrist. He's coming, and he's going to sedate him. And about that time, the uh, division psychiatrist came into the triage area there and uh i said what's going on brian says i'm gonna and he had a big old syringe i said well that'll that'll treat him but that's not his problem he's got demons and you know i kind of was praying quietly but uh, not too crazily and then um the general's interpreter was walking in and i say Ahmed, come here what's wrong with this guy and he says "Uh, well how do you say in english he has spirits and um I said, Brian, there's your second opinion. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no doubt, no doubt. So, so the point being, and it has been made well by, by both of you, that, yeah, I mean, let's not be sort of lulled to sleep by modern culture, you know. Um, demons are very active today. The devil is very active today. So over to the next page on the back there, the Christian and spiritual warfare. So again, we could you know, spend a couple weeks going through just this one topic, but just skimming over it and just giving a sort of an orientation to the topic. Spiritual warfare is a reality for every Christian, whether they are aware of it or not, right? You know, I mean, 
we're in war whether or not we realize we're at war. And that, that is, that's, the Bible is just clear. I mean, 1 Peter 5, 8, the enemy prowls about like a lion, seeking whom he may devour. Therefore, we should be sober-minded and watchful. And then in Ephesians chapter 6, this great teaching of Paul, he says in Ephesians 6, verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And so there are schemes, there are attacks, there are, uh, there's war that the enemy is waging on God's people. He has been since the garden, and he's doing it today, and no Christian is exempt from this. In fact, I would say no human being is exempt from this. this. All human beings are image bearers of God, and any chance that the enemy gets to, to mar and to uh, denigrate the image of God, he takes, especially against Christians. However, I think this is important for us to realize, so I don't want to minimize the reality of spiritual warfare, of demonic activity at all. But I think that we should also realize that the Bible, in regards to how we should live as Christians in this wartime, the Bible puts much more emphasis on fighting sin rather than on fighting the devil specifically in some you know, sort of specific spiritual warfare that might seem like a sort of specialized subset of the Christian life. So in Colossians um, chapter 3, verses 5 through 17, we see that the focus is on putting on Christ and putting, putting to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, and then putting on Christ. Ephesians 4, another, really, Colossians 3, Ephesians 4, and Romans 6 are sort of the three great sanctification chapters in the New Testament that really talk about what the Christian life is all about. And in Ephesians 4, again, we say, or we see this, this, this clear sort of emphasis not on the demonic forces, but on our responsibility to fight sin. And so in Ephesians 4, verse 17, he says that you should no longer walk like the Gentiles in the futility of their minds. And he goes on to list these things that we should practically do as Christians to say no to the flesh and yes to God. And then he makes this really interesting connection because I'm not, because here's what you, you just can't make this mistake that we sort of have over in this category, you know, spiritual warfare. And over in this category is like the regular everyday fighting of sin that every Christian is called to do. Those two things are related. And, 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 and our Fighting sin here, if we don't do that well, gives opportunity and occasion for spiritual warfare. And that's what Paul, the point he's making in Ephesians 4. So let me, let me read in, in Ephesians 4. I'll skip down to verse 25. He's talking about putting on the new man and putting off the old man. These are decisions that every Christian must make. Like, don't do that. Don't go there. Don't have that conversation. Don't look at him or her, don't drink this or smoke that or download this or whatever, you know. Just regular sanctification decisions about fighting sin that every Christian makes, has to make, and then Paul ties it into spiritual warfare. Verse 25, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sin go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. And then he goes on. So do you see there, right in the middle of one of these great chapters on sanctification, Paul couches the devil's attacks against us in sort of the same pot of soil that he's talking about fighting sin. And I think that is an, a really important point uh, about, about how the Bible calls us primarily to not have this sort of special category of of engaging devils specifically, but to fight sin and, and, and that um, thereby closing doors to the devil's activity in our life. We see the same in Romans chapter 6. And then interestingly, in 1 Corinthians where the church is so full of problems, I mean selfishness, sexual immorality, all sorts of stuff, Paul, when he's talking to the church 
about all of their problems, and clearly the devil was active in the Corinthian church. Clearly, clearly there was spiritual warfare going on. But Paul's emphasis all along is, is like, stop being selfish. Prefer one another. <laughs> so he's, 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 he's encouraging to fight, really, by fighting sin and thereby sort of closing their, their minds and their heart and their community off to, to, to the devil. So in all the problems in the church of Corinth, Paul doesn't tell them to cast out such and such spirits. Not that that's not occasionally something that Christians should do, but to repent and serve one another. The point I'm trying to make is that the regular uh, emphasis and rhythm of the Christian life is to fight sin uh, and, and thereby uh, engage in spiritual warfare. And then we see also um, James 4, 1, 7, maybe the best example of this. We see Paul talking about how, why, why are you having all this trouble? It comes from sin within you. And he's talking about how you should fight sin. James 4, 1, 7, let me, let me, read, let me read that. Um, put it up on the screen. Can you put James 1, 4? A 4-1 up on the screen. Um, I'll get it right here. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, you adulterous people. Do, not, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So what's the context here? Fighting sin. Verse 5, Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over our spirit, that he is made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So again, do you see this spiritual warfare, resisting the devil, is in the context of fighting sin. So let's not separate those two very important, um, that connection between spiritual warfare and fighting sin. Point number three there, under the Christian spiritual warfare, Satan's basic strategies are temptation and accusation. So he comes and obviously tempts Jesus. Um, and you can read about that in Matthew 4. And he comes and tempts God's people. There's no doubt about that. And again, he's a shrewd observer of human behavior, and so he is aware of the things that maybe we are vulnerable to. And then also we see in Revelation chapter 12 that he is the accuser of the brethren. And so his basic strategies are not to jump out from behind a you know, corner wearing a red suit and a pitchfork and whack us over the head and drag us away, but to tempt us with things that he knows that maybe we are vulnerable in. That's why we need the word of God and the body of Christ to surround us and protect us. And he attempts us with false accusations and lies about who we are. And that's why Christians need to know the gospel and they need to know who they are in Christ. Point number four there, Jesus gives believers authority over demons, but like everything else in this life, we do not always employ that authority perfectly. So yes, we have authority. Um, But we see in Matthew 17, the disciples could not cast out demons because of their weak faith. And then we see um, in in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 that Christians have divine power to, to destroy strongholds. So we have been given an authority over demons. But again, we, because of sin and because of lack of faith, we don't always execute that authority perfectly and never will until, until we stand before the Lord glorified and we won't need that authority any longer. But it's interesting to note also that even this authority that Jesus gives his disciples when he sends the 70 out for the first time in Luke chapter 10, um, you know, they come back and they're all excited and they said, we were casting out demons and they were leaving. It was awesome. We saw Satan falling from the sky. It was amazing. And Jesus says to them, yeah, that's awesome, dudes. But don't rejoice because the demons flee in your name. Rejoice because your name is written in the book of life. And so there's something even greater than spiritual authority. It's our salvation. So how should Christians exercise this authority? The emphasis should be on praying to God for protection and resisting the devil and sin. Should Christians speak or rebuke demons? Well, I want to be careful about that. In Acts chapter 16, we do see Paul charge a demon to come out of a girl in Jesus' name. But let's remember that Paul was an apostle. He had more authority than you and I did. And we see in in, uh, Jude 
uh, verse 9, the archangel saying to Satan, uh, the Lord rebuke you. So even then, he's speaking about the Lord rebuking him, not he specifically personally rebuking uh, Satan. Um, so I, I think that it, I, I wouldn't say that the scripture says we can't personally speak to or rebuke demons, but it, it just doesn't lead us that way. It just doesn't lead us that way. We see Paul do it. Um, I'm, not, I'm not saying just because he's an apostle that that's not something other Christians can do. But I just see the, the, the tenor and the tone and the current of Scripture towards resisting sin, praying for God's help, knowing the Word, gathering yourself in community, um, and, and, and really finding protection from the enemy and authority over the enemy in that way. But I would not be, you know, I would not be too strident about that. I think it might be appropriate, in certain, some, certainly in some cases, to um, say to a situation where we know there's specifically to be demonic activity, the Lord rebuke rebuke you. But my fear is, is that some Christians just kind of take that and they think like that is spiritual warfare and spiritual warfare is just like ginning up more faith and then speaking in authoritative ways to demons. And I just think that's, a, that's not the emphasis of Scripture. Does that make sense? The emphasis of Scripture is fighting sin, being in community, understanding the gospel, and then leaning on the Lord's strength if we ever have to speak to a demon, say, demon saying, Lord, rebuke you. Does that make sense at all? Anybody have any, any quick questions about that at all? All right, I'm flying through this, I know. Um, and so the Bible presents spiritual warfare not as strange or mystical or only for a special few, but part of everyday Christian living. And so, uh, yes, we're at war, you're at war, and you are capable to fight this war if, if you are a Christian by being in community, knowing your word, knowing the gospel, um, resisting sin, and in special circumstances, maybe certainly there might be times when we would pray for a person who is particularly vexed by a demon where we might say to that demon, the Lord rebuke you. But all of us are in daily spiritual warfare. Which brings us to the question, can a Christian be demon-possessed? I think the answer to this question in the Scriptures is clearly no. A person who has been brought from death to life and regenerated and filled by God's Spirit is owned by God. Um, I could point to a lot of scriptures that talk about Jesus, the, the Spirit of God's indwelling in the Christian. Um, we see that in Romans 8, 15. Um, we see in John 10 how Jesus says that, that nothing can snatch uh, his people out of, out of his hand. The term demon possession, point number two there, I think is an unfortunate phrase when, in regards to Christians because um, that it's used in some English translations, but it's not really reflected in the Greek text. The New Testament does, however, speak of people who have a demon or are suffering from severe demonic influence, but it just doesn't use the language that would su- suggest that the demon can possess a Christian. But I will say this, due to sins committed by a person, even if they're a Christian, or horrible sins that have been committed against him, I I do think that it's possible for a believer to be severely, severely vexed and troubled uh, by by a demon. I think that's clear. And whether or not a a non-Christian can be possessed with a demon, I I think that that certainly is a possibility because they're, they're in the world. In fact, I think, you know, in some sense, not possessed, but I mean, that you're either in Christ and in the kingdom of the Son and whom He loves, or you're, you're, you're in the kingdom of darkness, and, and the, you're, the God of this age is, is Satan. That doesn't mean that all non-believers are possessed, possessed by the devil. But um, the, the Bible just doesn't really use that term. Um, so I don't think Christians can be possessed, but nevertheless they can be severely, severely vexed. Um, Jennifer and I had a friend who was actually, uh, several years ago, attended Crosspoint for some time, doesn't live here anymore, um, it was was because of the thing horrible atrocities that were done to her as a as a young girl. Um, I think that she was uh, really really troubled, severely severely troubled by demons. Um, whether or not she was a Christian uh, it was really hard to discern. She was confessing Christ, but it was very difficult to discern. But I mean, we saw all sorts of strange kind of you could see just contortions and manipulations of her face and her countenance. Not like she had anything like like paranormal or any strange voice. But it was, it was very clear to us because of the sin committed against her that she was uh, terribly vexed by, by demons. Um, and it was slow going. 
talking to her. Um, any, any questions before we finish up? Yeah, in the back. Elaine. Can you speak into the microphone so we can capture it? Yeah, thanks. Satan is not omnipresent, correct? Right, no. Satan is not omnipresent. Yeah, he's limited. Any other questions? All right, well, yep, right, yeah. Right here, raise your hand now. There you go. Um, I was just going to ask, based on the 2 Corinthians like 11, f- 15, which follows 14, where it mm-hmm. says, so it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Do you think that someone who professes and like says that they're a believer can actually be like one of his servants in disguise, like if that makes sense, like that they are actually like serving him, but in a way of by professing faith. Yes. Yeah. And they might unwittingly think, yeah, I do. I think people can. So are you saying, can a person who's professing to be a Christian be unwittingly, be used by, be unwittingly or wittingly used by Satan? Um, Yes. I think that verse says that. And then I also think in like Acts chapter 20, I believe it is, where Paul is saying to the Ephesian elders, he's saying, I am going to leave you now and I'm praying for you. But one thing I'm concerned is that there are sheep, there are, there are wolves that are going to come and they're going to they're destroy you. And so guard against wolves. So there are some people in the church that are wolves disguising themselves as sheep. And some of them um, realize that, and I think that is clear. And then I think that there are a whole bunch of people that are self-deceived. And I think there are a lot of people that, probably even some major TV preachers, that probably think that they're doing good, but they're doing the devil's work by the false prosperity gospel that they preach. That is satanic work. So there's a perfect example. The, the, The prosperity gospel preacher on TV probably thinks that he's doing good, is self-deceived, is not jumping out from behind a rock with a red suit and a pitchfork on, but he or she is doing the devil's work. And I think that's what that 2 Corinthians 11 verse is talking about. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. It's a good point. David. Paul. Yeah, that's a, that's a good, yeah, I was like, Paul, what are we talking about? Paul, what, I thought he was a good guy. Oh, you're talking about before, before he was a Christian, yeah. Yeah, it's a good example. Paul, Paul, before he was converted on the road to Damascus, thought that he was doing the Lord's work. Yeah, 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 we can self-deceive and we can intentionally deceive. No, that's a great point. It's a really good point. Any other quick questions before we end? Yeah, Mark. Way in the back, way in the back. Raise your hand so Cole can get you the... Microphone. Hey, Brett. Uh, yeah. Just for my own clarification, if you could sort of set the scene, um, you had mentioned that angels uh, are not in the form of man. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what's the scenario in Genesis six, uh, in verses one, two, and four, mm. where it says that the uh, now, they, it refers to them as Nephilim. Nephilim, yeah. Um, and they, had, they saw the son, the daughters of man and liked what they saw, took them as wives, and then had relations, and then yep. had children. Yep. Um, great question. We're actually going to get to that in a couple of weeks because we're going to go through Genesis. Um, people have historically thought that uh, either that is fallen angels that are taking on the form of mankind for this, you know, horrible activity at that time for the destruction of the human race, you know, the distortion of the human race. Um, there are other things, and I would, I would more lean this way, that that's that, the Nephilim, and then a, a few verses earlier, the Nephilim in verse 4, and then a few verses earlier, the sons of God is not referring to heavenly beings, but just my, mighty men. Um, so, but that's going to take a while to unpack that, and so we're, I'm actually going to preach on that in a couple weeks. So I personally don't think that that is referring to angels. But some people do, and they're good Christians. But even if those verses are referring to angels, um, those are just fallen angels that are taking on human form, you know, um, for their particular, you know, bad purposes in that moment. That kind of clarifies. So, so there's, there's a whole, we'll get into that in a couple of weeks in Genesis 6, yeah, yeah. I was wondering if somebody was going to bring that up. 
All right. Okay. So let's uh, let's let's conclude with this real quick, and then we're we're going to be done here in five minutes. Two case studies of God's sovereignty. Job uh, chapter chapter one. Um, two cases of God's sovereignty over Satan. Job chapter one verse one. Notice that God is the one who initiates the trial. Verse 7, the Lord said to Satan, from wherever you come, Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, listen to this, we don't think about this. The Lord said, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on all the earth, blameless and upright, who fears God and turns away from evil? So notice that even in this most horrible example of trial and demonic attack, maybe in the scriptures, we, we see God as being over it. And then we see in the next couple of verses that God not only initiates the trials, He sets the limits in Job 9 through 12, chapter 1. Then Satan answered, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand, only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So the most dramatic uh, story in the Bible that we have of, of the devil directly attacking a man is still under God's sovereignty. Now that is simultaneously humbling and encouraging, isn't it? We don't live in a, in a Star Wars universe, right? God is not Luke Skywalker or Anakin or I don't, I don't even know. I need Robert Ward in here to get me straight on all the Star Wars stuff. God is not Luke Skywalker and the devil is not Darth Vader. And Jesus barely hits a free throw at the end and wins. Everything is under God's authority. That brings up all sorts of questions that are beyond our purview. I realize that. But God is over, over evil. You can read about Paul. Even Paul's thorn was given to him by God. Satan was used as a pawn to promote Paul's humility. And so we see again God using Satan as his minion to bring about hardship in Paul's life to promote more godliness in Paul. Why is that in the Bible? To show us that that's the way God works. He's over. He's over these these demons and devils in every respect. He knows the end from the beginning. And so let me conclude with this, and then I'll pray, and then we'll take a few-minute break. And those of you that can stick around and, and uh, ask Bill questions, please do. Romans 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Think about that. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, second person of the Trinity, is praying for you if you're a Christian. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed. Some translations, I think, wrongly translate we are being killed. Uh, led to death. No, I think the better translation is what it is here in the ESV, that we are actually being killed. Some Christians are being killed. Friends, there's something to fear that is worse than death. To be separated from God for eternity is worse than death. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Even if we die. For I am, that's not in the scriptures. I just put that in there. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers. Well, it is in the scriptures. I am sure that neither death nor life. It is in there. I didn't even read. Kept, should have kept reading. Neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, devils will assail us. They may even kill us. But if they do, it's because God knew the number of our day and said, it's his day, he's with me now. And he uses Satan as his minion to accomplish his eternal purposes. And even the worst of tragedy or trial that any Christian faces even on this earth pales in comparison to what awaits them forever and ever and ever. 
Let me pray. Lord, thank you for uh, your authority, your power. And I know, Lord, that there are many in this room that um, have been in, are going through, or will go through severe and difficult attack. It's part of the Christian life. Lord, give us a bigger and better view of your sovereign power. Give us a bigger and better and more biblical view of our authority and our future and free us from fear. You have not given us a spirit of fear, Paul writes to Timothy, but a spirit, but a, 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 a spirit that has a sound mind. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us wage a good war and that you'd be glorified in the way that we do it. And bless my friends, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.